Hello and welcome to End on End. I'm Brian. I'm Jeff. And today we are back in Ian land with Fugazi's first seven inch. Or seven inch discord 43. First and only, it's, right? Uh, I don't. Well, wasn't like Official. furniture seven inch or. Oh, later. I don't know if that later on, but maybe while they were actually around and active and releasing records. Yes, but exactly. Yeah. we still have not gotten to a full length Fugazi LP. Yeah, I don't know when we'll get to that. It feels like we have because of 13 songs, <laughs> no, it does, but, we, but we really haven't. So, yeah, this is the Fugazi. This is the three songs, seven inch, a reissue, uh, technically, hmm? uh, but we'll uh, we'll get to that. OK, what you've got is the reissue. Well, what I have, I have both. You have, have the, both. You have the sub pop. I have, I have the sub pop, uh, singles of the month, seven inch. But no, I you do don't not have the have, cover. I don't have the cover, and it's weird because I was talking to some of my uh, bandmates about that this episode was coming up, and um, the singer uh, in my band said the same thing, that he also has the seven inch only, but not the cover. Interesting. And I have, I have the uh, the black vinyl, which is actually the rarer. Mm -hmm. version of it but so yeah i do have uh nice i have both i don't even remember where i got the sub pop one i had this one first i'm such an idiot i remember when it came out had a chance to get it at one point and didn't and then i didn't for the sub pop yeah but anyhow all right let's get into it uh it's been a few days jeff <laughs> very short yep we uh this is actually one of the rare times where we are recording an episode before the prior episode we recorded even Hits the uh, has come out. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sure, uh, you know, actually, hopefully tonight after this oh. episode, it'll go up. That'd yeah. be wonderful. And we're uh, we're two days before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So the the holiday season is is upon us, Brian. Oh, God, it's bearing down hard on me at my job. But yeah, well, you're in retail, right? Mm -hmm. So that's grocery yeah. store. So anyhow, well, what have you been checking out in the last three or four days in the last three <laughs> or four days um you know what not a whole lot uh the only thing i've gotten that i've been listening to a little bit i think i've mentioned a few times in this podcast that the first major hardcore comp that meant a lot to me as far as the scene where i'm from new york and the you know the tri-state area was the big city records one big crowd comp oh, yeah, i'm sure i've mentioned that. that at least a few mm -hmm. times which which to me was the world. And um, so anything I still, all these years later, you know, I got that comp when I was 12 and now I'm 48, but still, whenever I see something by any band that's on that comp, I got to go for it. And this was a shocking reissue. This is from uh, beer city records um, out of Milwaukee. And they did a reissue of the band Bedlam yeah. who appeared, who had two songs on that comp. They were a New Jersey band. Um, one of the guys who was later in the band was a uh, co-owner of by records, mm -hmm. which was a label that released a lot of the like early adrenaline OD stuff. Say, that's that how was, I know them. Yeah. Yeah. By records is a really good New Jersey label. And so um, I had to, I had to pick it up and once again, you know, it's a nice reissue package. And that's uh, not, did they have more than one 12 inch? Cause that doesn't look like the one I had. Well, no, this is, this is a brand new cover and all that. Okay. Uh -huh. So it's not a it's not a straight up reissue of the first two. Like they had, a, I think what they call an LP, although it's very short. Mm -hmm. And then they had a, a 12 inch called Lost in Space. 
So this package is called Final Bedlam. It it combines both of those releases and then adds a bunch of kind of unreleased stuff at the end, like a couple of demo songs, a couple of live tracks. And thankfully, I was wondering if they would do this. This band was not a very politically correct band. <laughs> and, um, you know, in retrospect, some some of the songs are a little bit a little bit cringy mm-hmm. all these years later. And there was one song in particular that was really, really bad. <laughs> and they did the smart thing and they left it. They left it off the album. Oh, so that was smart. And it's it's not named by name, but it's addressed in the uh, in the liner notes that there was one song in particular that they had dropped long before the band broke up. And looking back on it, you know, it was kind of regretful to mm-hmm. have, having written the song. And so that song <laughs> is not on that song is not on this comp, but it's it's cool, man. It's good. Raw 80s New Jersey hardcore. It's weird. Like something I never realized before listening to this is that the singer in this band uh, James Dunleavy actually sounds now this band doesn't sound anything like who's could do. Yeah. No. But his voice actually sounds like a really, really early young Bob mold, hmm. like, like his screaming more, his more screaming, like land speed record right. days. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was like, wow, you know what? His voice actually sounds like a really, not the music going on behind it, but uh, his voice kind of sounds like that. I never made that connection before. So that's what I've been checking out. You can get that through beer city records. If you enter old, New Jersey hardcore. So um, that 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 was nostalgic for me too. I hadn't thought about that that the Bedlam twelve inch I had for God decades probably. So anyway, other than that, I have not been checking out much. Um, I'm going to just say that uh, real quick. I I had to go to a funeral this morning. Um, One of my closest friends' uh, father uh, passed away suddenly over the weekend. Um, shopping with his, yeah, he was, he was out shopping. He was at a grocery store with his wife, with my friend's mother and the two of them split the grocery items. And he like collapsed in the aisle of a supermarket. Wow. And uh, they took, they got him to the hospital. Unfortunately, he passed away. He passed away there. He was a very, very nice man. His name was uh, Robert Leff. He was the father of my friend, Scott. And uh, my 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 favorite memory is I used to go over there and hang out in high school. And I remember one time uh, like his parents were out and we were, we had just started watching reform school girls. <laughs> you're, you're aware of that yeah, movie yeah, with yeah. Uh, I remember. like borderline softcore porn yeah, yeah. with uh, Wendy O. Williams. That's right. And like they yeah, came yeah. in, they came in and like his mother went right to bed. And he's like, oh, what are you watching, guys? And we're just like, he's like, no, 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 leave, leave it on. It's all right. And he sat down and watched the entire movie. Oh, my us. God. That's funny. And it was like super <laughs> awkward, but also kind of like funny and fun at the same time. Like yeah. He didn't care at all. You know, he was enjoying it just as much as the boys were. So uh, <laughs> anyway, that's um, may uh, may Robert left rest in peace. He was a very nice man. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, that goes with the territory as we uh, grow into uh elderhood here you and i oh absolutely i think you know when, when you reach you know when you know we're you're in your early 50s i'm in my late 40s you know any of my friends of my generation who still have both of their parents mm-hmm. you know i feel like they're very fortunate to to still have yeah uh both their parents but he lived a good life he was he was 79 he he was married you know they were married for over 50 years three uh three sons who were all you know, grew up to be very fine men, you know, one, had, had a couple of grandchildren. So yeah. My friend Scott's the troublemaker, but <laughs> yeah. uh, no, he's um, it's, it's, it was, it was a good life lived. Yeah. yeah. 
thanks for sharing that. I think it's important to, to acknowledge the people we care about and their their family, the concentric circles of our lives to acknowledge and pay our respects in in a genuine way when when yeah. people pass. So yeah. So so I'll throw it to you. How yeah. about uh, how about you? How have you been? I've been these I've, last few days. I've been. I don't even know. I don't. I don't know up from down. Just this is literally the busiest time of the year at the grocery stores. It you know Trader Joe's. So whatever. It's fine. I'm getting through that. It's it's almost over. But a couple of things that I got that I actually didn't mention last time, just because I didn't want to extend our already long intro. So. I recently got uh, both of the first couple Bad Brains reissues, the the Roar cassette on vinyl reissue. And what I'll talk about today real quick is the Rock for Light reissue. Like like most of these reissues, it's got a beautiful splatter design uh, vinyl. But most importantly, the remaster is amazing. It, it makes it sound fresh. I've heard this record so many fucking times in my life. And it and I'm always excited when I hear it, no matter what. But it's like, I don't know, like seeing a high def version of the old Polaroid you had that you, you had no idea had had so much uh, detail to it. And, and it's speed corrected, which is awesome. You know, it's the original Rock for Light was sped up when it got released. And what's funny, interesting, I'm not even sure that I was aware of that. Yeah, yeah. And what's funny is that I had the vinyl, but I also had, for some reason, had the uh, store-bought tape cassette as well. And my cassette, as some do, got actually sped up itself. So the cassette, when I would be driving in a car listening to the cassette, it was like hyper <laughs> The chipmunks play the bad brains? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. But but yeah, and I was wondering when I heard that they they fix the speed on it if it would have the same ferocity power and just righteousness and it's strangely has more it doesn't sound slow at all you know they balanced out all the eq so the there's actually some bass in the mix there's mid-range of course but like especially the the vocals and drums come out really really well in this and the reggae songs which of all of it kind of sounded I liked on the record, but always sounded a little thin production-wise. They sound great now. Oh, it's it's such a gift to be able to listen to this again and hear it in a new way. I love that album. And I'm not going to go on record to say I like it more than the Roar cassette, which I know is uh, hearsay, but it's close. It's pretty damn close. Yeah, for me, the Bad Brains are... Um like diminishing returns each like, album. I, I think the work is set is that's my favorite is work. I love set. it. I love it. And yeah. then, and then rock for light second. Mm-hmm. And then I against I is third mm-hmm. and then quickness is fourth. Right. Quickness would rate. It would not rate higher than I against I under any circumstance. It would rate higher if it didn't have that song <laughs> on it, that problematic song on it. You would rate it higher um, than higher than no, I, no, no. Oh. I would I wouldn't but I would rate it higher than I do yeah of course yeah so Me I too. just feel like every bad brain it's like I feel like Roar cassette untouchable and I yeah. against I are, are just such a incredible trio of records yep. and then it sort of begins to slip for me yeah yeah you know how people talk about the first four Black Sabbath albums it's 
it's it's like the first three for bad brains like you said yeah and i mean it's weird they're one of those legacy bands much like in a much different way like circle jerks or one of those bands that still will play shows and stuff but the bad brains especially once they got out of the 80s you know they didn't put out anything that was that touched the uh the hem of the cloth of any of the earlier stuff yeah arguably their best record was one that hr didn't even sing on that's what i hear uh, that was uh, a rise hear that yeah yeah rise was a pretty good record actually Mm. so not it doesn't hold up against stuff we're talking about but yeah right right yeah so anyway that that reissue is amazing Uh, i was so so stoked when i actually put it on the turntable and the only other thing i'll mention is i've been listening to the audiobook of wayne kramer reading wayne kramer's autobiography the hard way or the hard stuff dope crime the mc5 and my life of impossibilities it's good stuff so far i'm only kind of up to where they're about to release kick out the jams but and of, of course they're at their peak they're at their most powerful most inspired right now in the book but you know i, I love every mc5 record and all the bootlegs pretty much and any live footage you see on youtube or whatever it's so full-on like there's never just a relaxed like oh they're going through the motions they're just so inspiring live oh yeah but yeah that, I mean, guy's, that guy's lived a uh he's lived an a interesting lives. life I, yeah yeah i know a little i know he spent time in prison exactly. i know that he um he started a program after he got out of prison, which I think he still does, mm-hmm. that involves getting musical instruments into prisons. Musical sort instruments. Sort of almost like a music therapy kind of for, for prisoners. Yeah. he. It, it's called Jail Guitar with Doors, and him and mm-hmm. Billy Bragg started it. And they get instruments to prisoners. They uh, make sure that pr- some prisons can get uh, live concerts. They'll do workshops. You know, he, he's very involved with all that. It, it, it's pretty inspiring after, like you said, the all the addiction and jail. And he could have ended up uh, dead a long time ago or one of those cautionary tales. And instead, he's like doing more both uh, social action, social political action than he did when he was in the so-called White Panther Party with MC5. Mm-hmm. No, I bet that's a really interesting book. Uh, I did. I got to see MC Fifty. Oh, you did. Uh, that's a couple right. of years back on Long Island. Yeah, and Brendan Canty was playing. Yeah. Him. How was that? So that was neat. It was absolutely incredible. I mean, it was just like, like a just a legendary lineup on stage. I feel like we've talked about this before. Was, we, you've uh, mentioned it. Yeah. I, I yeah. Can't, I can't recall who was. Did Kim, he have Kim Thale from Soundgarden uh-huh. was playing guitar along with with Wayne Kramer? Yeah. Um, who was playing? Uh, I mean, Billy who was Gould. singing? Billy Gould was playing bass from Faith No More. Brendan was playing drums. And uh, I can't think of his last name, but Marcus, the singer of Zen Gorilla. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, was singing, who was just such an incredibly inspired choice. Yeah. Because yeah. he he, he totally looks like sense. Rob Tyler. He, he has a huge, huge afro. And um, oh, it was such a great show. It was just an incredible show. And everyone just looked like they were having a great time. How could you not playing those songs? I know. I know. And I agree. I mean... Kick out the jams is a classic. It's ferocious. It's live, mm-hmm. but back in the USA and High Time are both great. Albums. Yeah, they both are. They really they're are, great. and they're all slightly different. 
kind of yeah, they're tamer. They're they're you know they're tame. They're in the studio, but mm-hmm. great songs throughout both of those records. Oh, definitely. I mean, back in the USA is like so influential to the Ramones. It seems like it, I didn't hear back in the USA for many years after I heard uh, and listened all the time to kick out the jams. And like I said, it, the production and just the tightness and condensedness of the songs and poppiness like totally reminds me of like i said the ramones like they had to be influenced by that yeah and obviously sure. bands like the damned and everyone else too you, you ever check out any of his solo stuff like any of those epitaph records he put out I, in the 90s i like dipped into one or two and i i thought about that today and i honestly cannot remember anything about them which yeah i don't know I, you know it's i don't know they're probably not bad but the fact that I don't remember one one thing at all about how they sounded, just, I don't know. I think they're more rock and roll. Yeah, but- they rock records. I picked up a couple at a thrift store uh-huh. by my place uh, a few months back. They were like two bucks each. Oh, wow. And it was well, each one was well worth the two bucks. I'll say that. Did you get the one? I saw that so. he had the whole, pretty much the band Clawhammer was his backing band on one of them. You know what? I they're filed away, <laughs> so I'm, I'm honestly not sure. Mm. All right, but they were good listens. They were both yeah. really good listens. That's cool, and I know he's recorded a lot of other bands. Yeah, I am also reading a punk rock bio book at the moment, but I will. Uh, I'll talk about when I when I'm finished. Okay. So, well. and I'm, I'm for me, I'm actually reading this one this one quick because it's it's pretty well done. So, tell me, it's not an Stay another tuned. junkie one. What what do you mean? About a heroin addict punk rocker? Uh yeah, it, it would it would uh, <laughs> perhaps have to do with that. Uh, okay. All right. Well we'll we'll tune back into what it is later then. We'll tune back in. All right. Another time. Teaser. Yep. All right. That's all I got. No podcast, yeah. no nothing else. I mean, okay, I will I'll just mention real quick. I won't go into any detail, but in the way that I that the podcast that we're going to mention a few times tonight, Alphabetical Fugazi does. And another guy does a longfish one that's just phenomenal. But <laughs> <laughs> going song by song. But there's a couple. Are you of- saying there's a second longfish podcast, right? Well, no. <laughs> oh, oh, all right. But there's two other podcasts I've recently checked out that do the exact same thing. Totally different music styles. Uh, one is the Steely Dan one. Oh, wow. Okay. It's really fun. And the guy, you know, it's a fine line with podcasts between being able to inject humor in a natural way and kind of things that don't translate as well to a big audience than, than it does to two people together. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they go back and forth on that line, but they have some good insights that kind of like you with your histories, they, they have a lot of info on their sh- on each episode so that's cool and the other one is one about nick cave but what's that what's well what's it called oh, sorry yeah the steely dan one which is ironic because they use a word in their title that i use in the subtitle of my lungfish one theirs is called countdown to exegesis wow that's an sat word yeah it is <laughs> and then the other one is a nick cave one and the nick cave one I might've got it backwards. I think Nick cave one is the one where they get a little too goofy, but the Nick cave one is called today's lesson, a Nick cave podcast. 
and they go through every so far every bad seeds record they're about three records in and there's a lot to chew on in those a lot of dark pretty messed up themes in some of the lyrics but like amazingly written oh my god those early bad seeds records are so good i love all that stuff but Mm -hmm. anyhow just thought i'd mention that real quick since since we've got some space up here yeah, no, I mean, this is, you know what? This is a trend. There are so many podcasts now. It I is, mean, there's yeah. hundreds. I mean, there's probably over a million podcasts at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, maybe millions. I don't know. It's it's exploded. So you got to find a niche for these things. You know, you're probably not going, if you're going to make a new podcast, you know, you're probably not going to compete at this point with, like, whatever you could think of mm-hmm. that would appeal to a lot of people has probably already been done oh. and has probably already established podcasts you know if you're into movies or, or a true number crime, of them yeah or, uh, you know yeah a lot of them it's gonna be hard to compete so it is kind of finding these like niche things to kind of you know uh Murder. you know break yeah to to kind of break into break into that you know and there are there are enough nerdy steely dan fans out there who i'm sure i mean hell i would definitely listen to <laughs> a song by song podcast about steely dan it's fun so yeah. i get it yeah and you know what I, I like the other idea too because i gotta be honest like nick cave mm-hmm. is like a big part of my musical diet that i have just been missing completely you know and i'm sure i would really like his stuff i'm sure i would like the birthday party stuff a lot yeah yeah but i just Especially like birthday party with the, a lot of the bands that you're really into yeah I, I mean i know and i have friends who absolutely worship nick cave and I feel like at this point, like his catalog is sort of intimidating. Like, mm-hmm. where do you even begin? So I feel like a podcast like that is kind of like, these are like really nice listener guides for these sure, artists, sure. Mm-hmm. you know? So it's a good way to kind of like, all right, that's, ins- I need someone to do one for the fall. That's oh. a band I've always been really curious about, but like, like they have a thousand, don't get a me thousand started. Records. I know. Don't, don't inspire oh, me. <laughs> I know. Podcast number five. <laughs> yeah. I would love to do a fall one. Uh, and that would be a multi-decade endeavor if you go song by song. <laughs> oh well, so much so, out there. Yeah, I wouldn't see a, a show like that would have to be more like an album by album. Definitely, too. definitely. You know. So anyhow, yeah, yeah, cool. There's a lot Neat. out there. So all right, let's. I know there's some, uh, you know, a good amount to sink your teeth into for the history on this record we're talking about today. So you want to want to wade us into the water yeah i mean I, I really don't have that much i feel like we'll save most of this time period for the next episode this is the first of a a trio of fugazi episodes since <laughs> catalog it. numbers 43 trilogy. 45 yeah are all fugazi releases and um and we're kind of dealing with 1989 at this point mm. so i feel like we'll kind of you know we're gonna i want to keep this episode a little tight it's Yep. pre-thanksgiving you know we had just done a, an episode we're about to get into into a heavy one uh the next next time around so oh, yeah it's a big keep one. this one a, a little bit lighter so uh we last saw fugazi well i was gonna say when we covered the margin margin walker 12 inch which was discord 35 uh but actually the it was it was when we did 13 songs which is what do you remember off the top of your head what that no, is not off the top of my all right. I remember well, anything it's, off the top well it of came head. it came right after Margin Walker. It was actually Discord 36. So that was the last time we dealt with Fugazi. Discord 36, 13 songs comp. So you can recall the last recording was Margin Walker, and you can recall that that had been recorded in December of 88. 
near the end of a lengthy European tour and was released in June of 89. And for the first part of 89, you know, the band played mostly regionally and in, in the Northeast, um, really significantly, I think, more than just going through a bunch of shows and tours, is that this is when Guy really began to start picking up the guitar and, uh, and, and playing it in a live setting. And so sort of the end of the first phase, one guitar era of Fugazi was, uh, was over. Uh, they embarked on a two-month-long cross-country tour from late April through mid-June. And in July of 1989, the band went to Interior Studios and with producer Ted Nicely and engineer Don Zientera, recorded three old songs for the three songs 7-inch. So it is interesting that uh, they kind of went back in time uh, recording songs, all three of which were originally go back to their demo tape. Uh, song number one and Joe number one were both played at the very first Fugazi show. Yep. And break in was played not that long after and was his uh, first. Yeah. Gee's first live appearance uh, singing. So these are, these are some early, early tracks. Uh, so this really, I think this seven inch really puts a punctuation mark kind of on the first era of Fugazi before we get into uh, repeater, which I think kind of starts a new, a new chapter Definitely. of the band. So this was the 14th installment of originally released as the 14th installment of sub pop singles of the month club series. It's originally sub pop catalog number S 52. It was a limited edition of 2000 copies. 800 were on black 1200 were on green. It was the December, 1989 singles of the month club release and singles of the month club was a subscription service where subscribers would pay either $35 for a full year or $20 for a half year. And Sub Pop would send you out a limited edition single every month. And it was a surprise each month. Yeah. And usually I think it was like unreleased stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And they've revived the singles of the month club over the years. In fact, I think, I think they actually might be doing it now. Really? Um, but the original sort of classic singles of the month club releases ran from November 88 until December 93. So a couple of quick trivia questions at you. One will be easy. One will be maybe not so easy. I don't know. So what was the first ever singles of the month club release? This was the easy one. Yeah, this is the easy one. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be the easy one. Now I've got mud honey on the brain. Go uh, Mud Honey, I think, was an early one. But it, no, it was it was Nirvana. I, was, I I wanted to say that too. Yeah, it was the well, you you wanted to say it, but you didn't <laughs> say it, and you could have said it. It was the Love Buzz Big Cheese single, mm. and I got to just say that what a rate of return on your investment if you yeah. if you paid all whatever it was three years of the Singles a Month Club, that record alone would have paid you back tenfold. Mm. Yeah, you know. So, um, so the other trivia question is who is the only other discord band to have had a release as part of the singles of the month club? This is the harder one. Yeah. I know the time period. <sighs> discord band who had released albums on discord. Definitely a discord band. I'll give you a hint if you want one. Give me a small hint. We have not yet covered them in the show. Circus Lupus. That would not be correct. I mean, I'm going to edit this. <laughs> Jawbird. I mean, Jawbox. 
That would also not be correct. Okay, I'm going to edit it again. Uh, <laughs> you get three shots at this, three strikes, you're out. Oh, God. Wow. It wouldn't be the, my first guess if I was guessing, which might be another hint. It's, uh, uh, it's not Nation of Ulysses. Uh, right, I'm, that's correct. It's not Nation of Ulysses. Does that count as you? It is Shudder to Think. It is not shut out of thing. <laughs> so it was the June 93 it was Severin. Oh, I wouldn't have got that. Damn. Okay. You would have gotten it. So, yeah. So that's, that's all right. So wow, for two they did the a trivia. single of the month. I didn't know that. They did. June of 93. It was kind of near the end of mm-hmm. the run. Um, so, and one month later, so this was released in December of 89. And one month later, January 90, uh, Discord reissues three songs with new cover art. And also turning the seven inch, from a big hole to a small hole. The sub pop release has a big hole. The Discord reissue has a small hole. I think Other you can go that, in listened, a lot of directions with that. We can we can go in a lot of directions. <laughs> I listened I listened to uh, both back to back, and I I didn't hear. I anything. was going to ask you. Yeah. I, you know, maybe my ear is not perceptible enough. I did not hear a noticeable okay difference between the two. Uh, between the two. Interesting. Okay. So what about, um, did you listen yeah. to the reissue? I mean, not the re- the remaster versus the, the uh, original. No. In fact, I'm not even sure which version I have. Okay. Cause right. They did. They did remaster it at some point um, much later on. Yeah. Yeah. Way later. But, uh, but I'm honestly not sure. Well, mine is dated. It looks like mine comes from was date stamped in 94. So I think this was, this is probably the original. original. Yeah. Yeah. So, so no, I did not compare it to the remaster. So that would be good. Mm. Okay. I'm assuming that that does sound. Uh, oh yeah. That's, that's all the remasters. You can totally hear some subtle differences. Yeah. So the only other thing I have is something from um, our favorite textbook dance of days. Oh, you get to use that again. Yeah. I get to use this <laughs> again. And in the chapter that covers that covers this time period, uh, the 89 to 91 chapter, Long Division, is one of his little um, sort of excerpt, his little sidebar oh, uh-huh. uh, in here called An Increasingly Hollow Tree. And I'm not going to obviously read the whole thing, but this is this is the part of the book where he addresses the singles of the month club. And he and being Mark, Mark Anderson, not This Mark would Jenkins. be, yes, that's correct. This would be Mark and- Anderson. So he, he says here, Basically, that he felt that sub pop was was like the antithesis of Discord. Hmm. Um, he felt that you know he's like uh, in particular as nearly the antithesis of DC and Discord. The sub pop singles club epitomized the collector record phenomenon. When Fugazi did one of these singles and put out the same music on Discord at the same time with only a different cover, the sub pop version nonetheless became immediately collectible, commanding ridiculous prices. But basically, he, he's saying how Sub Pop struck him as being apolitical, retro, and consumerist, hmm. which I think are all the things that he did not consider Discord to be. So I, I feel like it's maybe, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a condemnation. I, we know Mark Anderson's affection for Fugazi, but you know, you wonder if it's a little bit of a condemnation of Fugazi's decision to go with Sub Pop, you know, a label that does on, on the surface, at least by his argument, to be so incredibly different in its ethics than um, than Discord. Now, the question is, do you even agree with that analysis in the first place? Uh, yes, on the surface, and and definitely in general. But I wouldn't go so far as to 
especially at the time because sub pop was not the giant it became in the 90s at that point yet so you know there's that but yeah where they're coming from with how they were releasing music maybe that fugazi did it i don't think was so bad because they kind of remedied the whole collector thing by putting it out themselves you know pretty much right away afterwards so yeah and who does that really benefit though like because like sub pop like these these singles of the month club they released 2000 of them mm-hmm. i'm not sure if that was their numbers in general if that's the number they chose but they released 2000 of these fugazi singles of the month club. i am sure that discord like it's not like sub pop reaped the benefit of that record of like the, the originals of these records now being worth hundreds of dollars Right. Mm. People who sold yeah. them, who yeah. had already bought them, are reaping the rewards. Discord has sold many more copies of this EP than Subhop mm. ever did. That's a right. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's creating a collectible market, but they're not, you know. Yeah. It's they not. could have Subhop could have pressed 10,000 of these EPs and sold and sold all of them. Yeah. No, that's it's very valid. And, you know, <laughs> I'll start the reference to alphabetical Fugazi here then. I was in prep for this episode, re-listening to one that I had heard for, I don't remember which of the three songs were covering, but they mentioned an interview where Ian or Guy addressed this issue with Sub Pop by saying that they, uh, you know, they felt a big affinity to what was going on in Seattle in general. And there's a lot of cross-pollinization going on, especially as time goes on with the Riot Girl thing and all that, which we'll get into in the you know upcoming shows at some point but you know they really liked what was flourishing over there and felt a, a kinship so you know that seemed to be the main motivator for for them doing that and sub pop started as a, a fanzine and as a radio show it started very small and very passionate music people just like anything else yeah yeah interesting also, I was also listening to Alphabetical Fugazi. Uh, we've mentioned that. That's our friend Ian James Wright, who goes song by song alphabetically through the Fugazi catalog. He's getting there. Yeah, he's almost he's, done. He's, he's getting there. But all three of these songs, uh, he's already done episodes yep. on. And I guess like you, I just can't help but listen to it <laughs> in preparing for the episode. I'm not out to steal his thunder. I mean, you know, people say that we go on for a long time. <laughs> but if you took... I know the three episodes he did, you would have about four and a half hours worth of discussion about just the three songs he paid. True. So they really dive deep and do things we can't do. And and all of the guests they had for these three episodes are really, really good. But I'm not sure if this came from one of those episodes or not, but how, you know, one thing that Discord and Sump Pop both did that was very uh, savvy. Maybe this came up last week, too. I don't know. My head's all scrambled. Uh, was the idea of kind of marking your label as like representing your regional scene. Mm-hmm. Right. And that really has worked. Like it's really like discord has so tied themselves into being a label of, and for the DC scene. Yeah. Right. And sub pop was like the Seattle scene. Yeah. And like, that seems to be like a pretty successful way to market a label. Sure. You know, and that's something that both kind of labels, record labels did, even if even if there is no such real thing as like the DC sound, sound or yeah, the yeah. Seattle sound. I mean, there's bands from Seattle that don't 
Yeah, but you know, don't they're, sound they're, grunge they don't, or don't. Yeah. yeah, but they're still part of the Seattle sound or yeah. DC, DC for sure. We know there's yeah, yeah. a lot of very differing styles, and um, but it's still like the DC scene. And somehow having that umbrella, you know, of your scene, of your location has, is a successful way to market something. Well, and it's part of that whole tribalism thing that, you know, also in the early days of Discord, the mentality as you know young teenage guys which most of them were was as punks these outcasts that were in threat of getting beat up you know had to stick together had to uh look out for each other and that kind of you know both individually and pulled out in in terms of uh bands too and, and figured it's it's better to help each other and lift each other up than to uh you know do like the typical rock scene stuff of trying to undercut it, you know, other bands and claw your way to the top or what have you. Mm-hmm. So true. You know. Yeah. Good points. That's all I got. Not, not much, just not much history this week. Okay. Okay. Keeping, keeping it short, keeping it short for a short record. There you go. <laughs> keeping it 45 uh, style. So yes. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about when we first heard this, I have a feeling I know your answer. Mm-hmm. My answer is probably similar to how <laughs> most people heard it. And that was as the, uh, on the repeater plus mm-hmm. three songs CD. Right. Um, that is, that is how I definitely first heard it. I'm not even sure I was aware at first when I first bought it, that that was like a separate thing that they yeah. appended. A lot of, so people. it's mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, one thing that, that some of the alpha, Medical Fugazi guests were talking about with this is that it's almost jarring to hear Shut the Door, you know, which is a great, the great closing track on repeater, and then go into song number one. That it's like you almost don't like you almost want to hit pause real quick. Yeah. Because like, no, no, that doesn't work. But for me, it like when I hear Shut the Door, like you expect my brain automatically (laughs) starts starts hearing song number one. I could see that. I mean, it makes sense. Of course. Being just just older enough to uh, have experienced it all as it came out, I, I'm the opposite. And I was thinking about this after hearing those episodes as well, and hearing, thinking about how we talk about this a lot. And to me, what would have been a good answer to this kind of conundrum of bands putting so much time and thought into sequencing full records, and then throwing all this extra material at the end? on the CDs. I'm not against that. And in fact, when I was young, I was happy to get so much more material all in one place. But what would have like, say I, if I had a label and was going to do that, what I would do is, you know, end of shut the door happens. I would have a good 10 seconds, at least, if not more of silence before, which you could maybe skip ahead if you needed to, but just to kind of give that feeling of completion. So it's not like, Okay, now the next song. Now the next song. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Maybe even put a couple of silent tracks so that you actually have to interact with the CD player to get yeah. to that next yeah. song to yeah. make it feel like you're you're playing something different. You know, another thing they could have done was put the three songs EP at the top of the record. I know. So that's how it appeared chronologically. Yep. And you know, I my young kid, like hearing it, I'm like, when I, you know, when I, before I realized, oh, this is like a, an EP they're appending to the CD mm-hmm. release. Like, why is song number one 
<laughs> song like number song number 11 13. that doesn't make any yeah, sense yeah. yeah whatever it is yeah that's so that would and <laughs> that's something i've always had a, a issue with when bands put out the discography cds when they always have like the newest material at the very top and then it goes backwards in time as you listen it's like no i want to hear the band develop i don't want to hear them devolve you know <laughs> Yeah, I like listening to, I'm with you. I like listening to discographies of bands chronologically. I want to hear how the band progresses and unites and gels and how maybe lineup changes affects things. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Not everyone uh, feels that way. Yeah. <laughs> True. You know, or even worse, like where some bands just kind of mix up, like like take it as an opportunity to like re- resequence their right. Shuffle their own <laughs> records, which, which has happened a few times. That's true. All right. Well, oh, I didn't say how I got into it. So yeah, how'd you get into it? I'm trying to think. I didn't, like I said, I didn't get the sub pop single and I, I did get the EP, but I didn't get it even when it very first came out on Discord. Cause it's one of those things, you know, I still didn't have enough of my own money at that point to buy everything I wanted and all my friends had it. So I would listen to it at their house and I taped it, et cetera, and then eventually bought it. But the songs were totally familiar to me as well. Like, you know, of course, like you said, from the very first show, they had been playing song number one. And at that point in time, they played that song. It, I guess we could consult the archives if we needed to, but I didn't take the time to do that. But it, it felt like they played that song nearly every show too. So that was like a definite staple of the live shows. So it was, it was awesome to have a recording of it. Joe number one, they played a lot, I guess, but for some reason it didn't stick with me other than just knowing they played an instrumental to open things sometimes. And Break In, I vaguely remember, but didn't stick with me as well, you know, as a live song up until hearing the recording. And that kind of gave it a little more focus. But yeah, you know, I'll, I'll save going into any more detail till we drop that needle which is coming up in a moment yeah yeah i mean all three songs really stayed in the set list you know to varying degrees um right up through right the up end, through the right? end yeah yeah i mean um both both break in and song number one were performed during that last run of shows in london that they played um it looks like joe number one got retired a little bit earlier. So those last shows were in 2002, right? I think. Yeah, we're, we're 2002. And uh, yeah, so the last time they played Joe number one, yeah, was in was in Canada in July of 2001. So the year before. Oh, okay. But, uh, you know, but basically, you know, those songs were part of their sets their for their entire, entire catalog. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Joe number one is probably one of, uh, song number one is probably one of the most played songs. Sure. Yeah. So, makes so sense. they had staying. They had staying power. Yeah, which which makes sense. They thought highly enough of the songs that they wanted to document them in a recording before they moved on to their new material. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah. Let's uh, let's get into it then. You ready to? Uh, yeah. Let's do it. Throw that needle down. I'm ready. Okay. Throw it down. <laughs>
Here we are at the three song EP, Needle Goes Down on which song? That's right. Song number one. And just a quick, another quick trivia question for you. What kind of song is song number one not? Oh man, that's hard. Because it's a fuck you song, right? Oh no. (laughs) Uh, You almost had it right. (laughs) Damn it. I'm so bad at trivia. It's funny about this this song because like song number one, that's like one of those uh, like working titles on oh, the surface. Right. You would yeah, think, well, yeah. that's a working title, but no. But song number one is actually yeah in the lyrics first lyrics too. that he <laughs> yeah. said. So it's you know it, like it intentionally you know like it intentionally the... called this. But yeah, but you start. No, that's true, and it's it's a little ironic too because what I figure is it's probably the first song he wrote with this band specifically in mind but it's not the first song that he wrote that fugazi played because we we've already established that that he had been working on in defense of humans before this i think i'd heard that even bad cop had uh been kicking around in some form or another since isn't the song great cop oh yeah that one great Cop. (laughs) (laughs) that's right you would make a great, not a bad cop. Right. Um, yeah. So those, you know, some of the songs had been in embryonic form pre-Fugazi, whereas maybe this was the first one that he's like, all right, we've got the lineup. This is song number one. And he's kind of making a statement of intent. 
And also, you know, doing something that Ian does quite often of being a little, what's, well, you know, one, being a little grumpy, but two, be, <laughs> <laughs> being, uh, being both introspective and declarative at the same time. He's kind of addressing in some ways, like his role and kind of being like, hey, I feel like he's on one hand, he's telling people what to do by telling them what not to do. And he's also saying, hey, don't look to me to tell you what to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's one way of, of I mean, that's one element, one element. I mean, that's not the you whole. know, that 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 part of the song where he's saying, you know, fighting for a haircut then grow your hair, crying for the music. I doubt you really care. Looking for an answer. You could find it anywhere. It's kind of like he's bringing up possible things that somebody might be mulling over and saying how to counteract that. He's not specifically saying grow your hair. No, he's no. saying what's basically in general. He's like, you know, what's your concern? And, you know, and whatever your concern is, you know, is it is trivial? Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you know, do the opposite, you know, or. Well, and, and he's, he's addressing. Be a contrarian, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, he's, he's lived that out to some degree, but he's, it, it, it feels like he is addressing identity politics, especially within the punk scene, of course, you know, and that's played out by how people dress, how they look, how they present, how they write, how they do everything you know and so talking about crying for the music talking about you know whether he's talking about people calling people sellouts or defending what punk is to them etc he's saying you know that's nothing you know you it's it's not about any of that it's about living living your own way how you feel and how you know not taking yourself so self-righteously and i feel like he's on one hand like like he does in a lot of his, especially in the Embrace songs, I'm sure there's some element in there, even though it's not obvious at all, that's kind of pointing the finger at himself as well. Well, I definitely feel like this song it feels to me like it's chasing away the ghosts of Minor Threat. Yes. You know, once and for all, maybe in a way that he didn't fully do with Embrace, you know, because Minor Threat had a lot of fuck you songs. <laughs> and so, you know, he's declaring and actually the lyrics show almost like a sense of humor almost immediately out of the gate mm -hmm. where he says, song number one is not a fuck you song. I'll save that thought until later on, meaning, you know, I'll I reserve my right. Yeah. I reserve my right. But for now, you know, and so I feel like that's chasing away ghosts. And just at a time where, you know, minor threat with, you know, the shaved heads or, you know, the X's on their hands or, you know, there was a certain uniformity that grew out of the scene and, and that minor threat was kind of in the center of, um, you know, straight edge. And they sang about straight edge and all of a sudden there's this whole culture of straight edge. And like, I feel like he's kind of drawing a line here and saying it's fighting against that uniformity that, that experienced uniform as a younger choice. man in an earlier band, in, you know, in, in his earlier band. Yeah. He's making, he's making a declaration of a separation between mm -hmm. what was then and what was now in that, you know, maybe some of these things that people held to be so important and really fought for really are not, those aren't the things that are important. Yeah. You're, you're reinforcing my, my earlier statement then. Uh, that's all I'm doing is reinforcing <laughs> your earlier statement. Well, but that you weren't sure about, about him, like saying right up front, making it clear that, Hey, I don't want you to follow what I say, you know, mm -hmm. and don't take my words as religious, uh, text here 
it's interesting that he does say, you know, that line, everybody's talking about their hometown scenes. It's like, that's kind of what he's about, right? You know, mm-hmm. growing and maintaining his hometown scene. <laughs> but he's saying even that's nothing. Yeah. But I like I like some of the lines, you know, the ones that I like are like looking for an answer. You can find it anywhere. That's that's pretty philosophic there. Mm-hmm. And in the last part, like the last uh, verse I like and I liked a lot when I was young. Now it sounds a little, uh, I don't know, like the kind of thing that you'd hear in a hip hop song or something these days that, you know, it, it's true, but it, it it's put a little trite in some ways. Life is what you want it to be. Don't get tangled up trying to be free. Don't worry what the other people see. You know, I could almost see a or or like a pop ballad would say something like that. And not to downplay it because it's a good sentiment and I agree with it. But yeah, it's clever. You know, it is one thing, too, that so, you know, as we've mentioned, they play this at their very first show. And that's one of the ones I downloaded from. I think that was the first one apropos that i downloaded from the archive a while ago and i listened to it before doing our show and it's so interesting to hear ian sing the song solo it gives it a different a different spin it it sounds pretty similar but i thought i would miss Guy's like call and response more it just gives it more of an ian a full ian feel with him singing it alone and then there's a backup vocals on the It's Nothing part, who I'm not sure who's doing that, since I don't think Guy was on stage with him at that point. Mm, oh, interesting. Yeah. But yeah, this song, I mean. So it, musically, we haven't talked about this one. Well, that's what I was. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. getting to. Like it to me, like you said, it's clever lyrics. It It's him making a statement of what could be considered almost existential statement. And, you know, None of that would matter if it wasn't a stone classic riff. The music, his delivery, Guy's delivery, it's one of their, as we mentioned, them playing it so many shows, it's one of their anthems. It's one of the, obviously, probably their first being song number one, but so many of those early songs are just so sing-along, so much can't help but move when you hear them. And this is hits all those bells for me. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of classic early Fugazi where... Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of based around, you know, a singular repeating riff. Yeah. That just gets drilled into your head. And in this case, it's just that that opening pull off and pluck riff. Mm-hmm. Which is super simple, but it's so effective. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, you hear it a few times. and But I just love what they do. I love the stops and the long pauses. Mm-hmm. Um, then the big, I like the part. chorus, you know. Right. Then, right. They, they kind of get away from, like, the tight you know, uh, pull off and put chorus and yeah. they go for the big open power chords, uh, which again, it's very similar to kind of um, the types of songs that they were writing in the early days. Oh yeah. And um, Joe's dominating the pocket on this one. You know, it's him and Brendan are just, they're showing off. Like, I mean, the band's showing off just how great a rhythm section they are right out of the gate. You got that kind of funk reggae punk thing, just like down to a T. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ian, does. you said hip hop earlier, you know, Ian does sing these songs and sort of uh, 
yeah. a hip hopish way, right? There's a hip hop <laughs> flavor to the way he sings the song. Ben's and you kind of have. I can see Ben hearing us trying to talk about hip hop porn. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm I'm the least qualified person in the universe. We talk about hip hop, but you know, there's a certain rhythm to the way he's singing the songs that does have that a kind certain, of cadence, you know, funky yeah. feel to it. Yeah, and. Again, you know, you kind of have, we talked about Guy kind of doing, uh, you know, playing the foil. Mm-hmm. And here, I mean, he's doing that all over the place. Oh, yeah. This this in Waiting Room is is like their brother and sister songs. Just they're both so great. And they both kind of hew to the same structures, but in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And Ian's riff, the main riff and chorus to some degree, too, like if egg hunt would have recorded more than that seven inch like you know you can see the trajectory from that to this so easy it's not so far removed just more Mm. funky you know yeah one thing i think is kind of funny about this seven inch if you think about it it's almost like song number one is ian number one then you've got joe number one and break in is gi number one yeah that's true that's a good way of looking at it (laughs) Any other observations on? Uh, no, I mean, I like I like the long, you know, the stops yeah, the, and the long the stops, pauses yeah. that they do. That and was especially, a huge. What people don't realize is that was pretty uncommon back then, like really uncommon. Like it's become such a thing that bands do as the years went on that, you know, people think of it as a Fugazi thing, but it's easy to forget how, I wouldn't say revolutionary, but how different it was to hear a band just stop and then start playing again like yeah not just do a quick little pause and into a heavy thing right i mean that's one thing fugazi does really well that's one of the the big lessons of funk you know and funk bass playing is it's it's almost more about the spaces yeah than it is the notes and and they do that a lot and the only other note was just when the guitar solo opens up you know during one of those pauses and it just has this sort of dying feedback Oh yeah, and uh, it makes for an interesting, you know, an, an interesting sound there. He does that a couple of times on on this EP, and and it, all to great effect. Just something that in another's hands might not come across like the same kind of texture that he's able to add with just a little bit of offhand uh, feedback or little randomly running your hand on the strings. Mm-hmm. What were you gonna say? Um, no, I was just wondering if you ever heard uh, Magna Pop's version. I never did. I saw that they covered it, but I never, I never did. Did you? Yeah. Well, it's it. There is a recorded cover of it, which um, was produced by Ted Nicely, by the way. Huh. And uh, it's on their slowly, slowly single. Now, I did not hear that version. I saw a uh, a live version that they played. I guess they did some reunion shows at some point recently, relatively recently, uh-huh. and. Um, Ah, oh, yeah, I wasn't digging it. Oh, yeah, I wasn't digging it. It's <laughs> it's like it, I think it's kind of one of those things where Fugazi has just such a unique style. They do yeah, yeah. created by those four specific musicians, right? That trying to cover a Fugazi song, you're not going to be it's them. Just, it's yeah. it's never gonna it's never gonna work out for you. Yeah, uh, that's a good know? point. Good point. And yeah, this is one of those songs along with Waiting Room, like I said, and a couple others. Like I remember Furniture 2 being one that in the early days, you know, all I remember is being, I mean, I saw them at DC Space 2, but the Wilson Center, is they would play there a lot and it would just be so packed and so sweaty that, you know, as soon as these songs were starting with those beats, like 
the whole crowd, even if you didn't want to move, you were moving because you were stuck to everybody else and the whole crowd is like surging around. It was pretty great. Mm -hmm. Why don't you get us into... uh, Yeah, well, that's it for side A. Yeah. That's uh, it for song. Side. That's true. That's it for side A. Song number one, it gets gets its own side, and we flip it over, and we go into Joe number one, which um, again credit to Alphabetical Fugazi for pointing this out. That uh, this in Brendan number one, which we'll be visiting uh, next episode, uh, were often used as set openers, and uh, apparently the reason why is that it kind of gave the band like a last sound check. Yep. Yep. For they, you know, because, you know, doing a sound check, check in a big empty room and, is yeah. going to be different than doing, you know, you never get the opportunity to do a sound check once the place is filled. And these instrumentals kind of gave them a chance to hear things and make some final tweaks before they had to start dealing with the vocals. And, and much so, less, um, you know, much less that, which they did mention. And it's true. I think part of the reason a lot of DC bands, like starting around the Rev Summertime, and even right before, like Marginal Man's the first one I remember, but started opening with cover, I mean, opening with instrumentals, I think is, you know, if you've ever tried it in your bands, it it also gives you a chance to kind of easily uh, start warming up into the, into the music versus like dive in headlong into some like hard to play song or something. Mm-hmm. It's like an overture too. It's like a uh, an announcement to the audience that hey, the show <laughs> oh, is sure. the, the show is the show is <laughs> beginning, <laughs> right? You know, come on in. Not that Fugazi probably needed to encourage anyone, to, yeah, to come on in. Well, I mean, it's what's funny though is Joe number one actually starts with Brendan. Yep, <laughs> uh, the song starts with some uh, drumming to, to set it up. But I got to say, like this opening, this baseline again. Uh, this instrumental is really uh, is is built on a foundation of that four note riff, bass riff that Joe Lally is playing, and it's amazing because Lally just has a way of making four notes sound like twenty notes. <laughs> yeah, and it's just all in the rhythm that he's playing. You know, this opening bass line is just it's four notes. I pulled out the bass. It's just that box of notes at the mm-hmm. end of at the end of the neck. It's an F G B flat and C, and then he hits the octave on the F every fourth measure. It's just a nice, simple bass line, but it's just, it's the rhythm. It's how he subtly changes kind of um, the second note, which he, which he alternates between the second and third notes as he's, as he's playing the rhythm. I really like when Ian comes in, uh, doubling on the piano. He's playing those low notes along with him, which uh, really is accentuates. Is it a piano or is it a keyboard? It sounds more keyboardy to me. Yeah, I don't know if it's piano or keyboard. I mean, mm-hmm. I... My instinct was was that it sounded like piano. I thought well, because sounds, I could it hear it sounds like the piano setting on a keyboard to me. Well, it could, could be. be it, well, you, you could be one hundred percent right. What I'm reacting to is I could hear the percussive nature mm-hmm. of the piano sound. You know that especially you especially hear it on the um, on the, the co- extremes the part. of the piano, where if you hit either a really low note or really high note, you could really hear that hammer hit the string. Um, inside of a piano and you can really hear that that percussive tone that's happening as he's doubling now maybe it maybe it is the keyboard setting it's it's a keyboard and it's the setting on the piano that mimics that percussive you know hit uh that i'm hearing but i really i really really dig that a lot and yeah you know simple guitar line just going back and forth between a couple of notes but i think it's a really really effective 
it's a really effective instrumental. I think so too. I think I would have done without the second chorus or bridge, whatever you want to call it. The second part, the second time kind of feels like it's getting a little long by that point, especially because what Ian's playing is so exploratory and less defined really other than the kind of opening octaves. So, you know, but I love the whole first part and the piano. If, if the piano wasn't on this track, I would be so much less interested. would probably fast forward through, but mm. the piano really holds my attention. It just adds that one element it needs for this song. And I, I watched some YouTube videos of later shows where they played this. And with Guy playing second guitar, it, it also kind of helps fill it out, you know, what of course, he's not playing what the piano would play, but he fills the space that the piano fills on this song. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, you didn't touch on like it definitely the lyrics. The the lyrics. Let's dive. I mean, there's a lot to dive into this one. Mm, lots to unpack. <laughs> yeah, unpack. Yeah. No, I mean it's very. Uh, the main main riff is very '60s spy theme updated mm-hmm. for the 80s type of uh vibe to it definitely i hear peter gunn but i also hear some kind of action like mission impossible style you know vibe going on yeah i can hear that yeah i mean it's it's solid it's not it's not like in my top tier fugazi songs especially the second part i don't know i don't di- the more i listen to it the more i kind of like it but it just feels like they committed on the first part but they kind of aren't really sinking their teeth into the second part the way that i would like to hear them doing it yeah the second part's a little lumbering yeah yeah it lumbers along a little bit but i like it uh i think it's a good interlude between the two non-instrumental tracks Mm -hmm. and i like that they led off side two with it because it does feel like an opener so sure it's an it's an intro of sorts to one of the shortest songs of the entire I know. An intro that's twice as long as the song yeah. it's before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is a great place to mention once again on, you know, I feel like we're an ad for Alphabetical Fugazi today, but on the episode for this song, which we've both agreed is like probably our favorite one of, of the three episodes about these songs. Yeah, they're all good, but they the are. guess that they had for Joe number one was really, really insightful. Really good. Yeah, really good. He and, and great speaker. He apparently is toured with playing saxophone with the Pogues and the Pogues, yeah, many other bands. But he, uh, it, let's it, get his let's get his name up. His name is Pete Frazier. Thank you. Yeah, and w- what I liked on the episode was that Ian uh, asked some. They, they kind of since Pete's talking so much about the music theory stuff of the song and mentions about playing sax jokes about doing a, a saxophone quartet version uh ian kind of pushes pete to be like hey well I'll, you know we've got time i'll i'll include it in the episode if you get it going and i you know you totally don't expect it then a few seconds later he puts in the whole you know this whole saxophone quartet version of this song which sounds amazing it's so good yeah i would recommend people listen to that episode just for that version it's such a cool and, and that's that's the way you have to do Fugazi songs if you're going to try to cover. Yes, it. yeah, I you got to do something that totally completely different. Yeah, yeah, you have to reinvent the song a little bit. I agree. 
Anything else for you? No, I'm ready to yeah. break out. Break out. Let's break in. Let's break in. Uh, yeah. So then we got break in the last song, clocking in at a svelte minute and like, thirty seconds. Yeah, right? yeah, it's like a minute and a half. It's got to be one of the shortest songs, right? One of their shortest yeah, songs. Yeah, I think so. And so what seems to be obvious, although Guy is a little cagey about pinning down the meaning of the song. It definitely lends itself to being interpreted as a song about teenage love slash lust turning into teenage pregnancy and, and abortion. But also, and this is quite a stretch, probably, I'll give you that. When I was reading through the lyrics, I was like, what else could I find in here? And I came up with almost kind of a potential spin on it being about a sex worker with you know, her inviting, you know, inviting him in and uh, it's no sin, but there's a time when the skin wears thin about, you know, the potential price on the body and psyche that the sex workers endure over time. And, and she's working on another skin. Uh, And of, of course the lines, and he wonders, will my money, will it cover for me? And it could be kind of a moral question and she's the covering, you know, it's, it's probably not that, but that's one interpretation that I came up with, but it, it obviously seems like one level is definitely about a young couple, kind of like an update of the David Bowie song, Young Americans. Mm-hmm. Like that song always hit me is, you know, it's such a romantic, but also like super sad song about the consequences the potential dangers of sex. Yeah. I mean, your interpretation is interesting and there's nothing that overtly says this song is about, Mm -hmm. you know, a guy who gets his girlfriend pregnant and then tries to maybe encourage an abortion or, you know, kind of to cover himself. There's nothing that overtly says that, but there are three verses and each verse does seem to be sort of um, in a sense, like the de-evolution of a, of a relationship, Definitely, you know, where, everything's you know you know happy and about you know that that initial you know that initial stage of just having sex all the time and <laughs> that's it but then the second verse there is in a sense a a complication in a sense depending yeah. on how you're looking at it of of um you know of perhaps the girl getting pregnant and now you know there's a time when the skin wears thin maybe things are getting a little bit old and now she's her priorities have changed to now being pregnant and caring for the child inside of her. And now in the third verse, he's wondering like, kind of like how to get out of this situation that he's in. He didn't really want to get her pregnant. And well, uh, well the third verse no. is she's working on another skin. Oh. And then at the end, he's wondering, well, my money will cover me. Yeah. That's that at least the way the, the lyrics are printed out on the lyric sheet. Um, and he wonders, well, my money will it cover yeah. for me is the first line of the third verse. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that's a good point, that whole thing, because the first section starts with, you know, he's happy because she's happy, just let him in. And then when he asks, will you let me in from a place where they sh- they share skin, the first first section, they're sharing this. And then on the second verse, it turns into he's happy because she's got skin. And she lets him in. It's less of a communal activity. It's more of something she's letting him do, and he's happy. 
Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. It, like you said, it does. It, the dynamic devolves as it goes on. Yeah, exactly. But Guy's lyrics, you know, do lend themselves open to interpretation. He's 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 not as overt and direct as as Ian often is with his lyrics. No, definitely. And songs like "Give Me the Cure." There's songs like this, and there's uh, Latin roots. There's all these songs that have to do with sex sexuality but the the potential issues that come up with with sexuality and it's not a condemnation of sexuality but it's exploring all the uh, angles of discomfort and inequality etc that could come from sexuality musically the song was a total firecracker do you you like it i I like it i don't oh yeah musically i do i like the song a lot i used to really look forward to the song uh, you know, popping up, kind of ending the CD that I had, because uh, it's a total, it's hardcore. Yeah, yeah, here's it Fugazi, is. Fugazi doing a hardcore. Fugazi isn't doing their Fugazi things that we've gotten used to. You know, there's no little funky spots in here. This is just a totally driving song from beginning to end. But still, even though it's only a minute and a half long and it's pretty much a hardcore song, um, it's still very well arranged. You know, there's still unpredictable arrangements, parts where instruments are dropping out and coming back in, well-placed pick slides. So it's it's all the things uh, to me that make for a really fun minute and a half long hardcore song. Yeah, it, it, it works. And especially since it's a minute and a half musically for me, it's not, again, it's not my favorite element of Fugazi. I think they even do that element better later on some songs like Bad Slash Great Cop. And, and uh, but I do like it. it. It's just, you know, coming, it's hard. Anything coming after song number one, I think, is up against a lot for me. But I, I think it's a strong song. So, a quote that I, I came across in the, the great In on the Killtaker book by Joe Gross, there's a quote by Guy and a quote by Ian where they're trying to, you know, talk about the songwriting styles when the band as a group comes up with a song, you know, someone brings in parts and they all tear apart the parts and reassemble them and, you know, it turns into a whole new thing. And then, then they try to figure out who's going to sing it. And Guy says, it's like, do we want this one to be like barking or whining? <laughs> and then Ian says, right, exactly. Yeah. Do we want the drill sergeant or the mealy mouth guy? <laughs> it's so funny it's good that they have a sense of humor about their yeah their differing styles but that's what made fugazi what it was right oh definitely and you know i guess the thing with joe number one and and break in they both are good songs and they're both middle tier songs for me not top tier not bottom tier but for fugazi to me but uh when I do go and look on YouTube or listen on the archive to live versions, I tend to prefer the live versions, except for, I will say, like I said, like we mentioned that the piano does add a really cool element on Joe number one. Well, the cover art <laughs> is different, but uh, I don't have the cover art. I've, I know, seen right? it. <laughs> I've seen it, but I don't have it up close. So, um, the cover art just talk about the discord yeah. one well well let's talk about both the okay the sub pop one you know i've had friends that had so i was aware of it's 
not that attractive to me, honestly. It's it's <laughs> it's you know hand drawn pictures of I don't know I guess teenagers' faces, and I want to say I remember the cover was like one of those that that you pull out you know the under sleeve of the cover and it's it's the faces and the circles are on the outside of the sleeve. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Houses of the Holy or not House. Uh, Led Zeppelin three or whatever. Okay. But yeah, but it's, it's, I I think definitely the discord cover is an improvement. I mean, the one on sub pop looks like it would be a K records or uh, internet, not international noise conspiracy. What's the international pop festival, whatever. Okay. what a K record style. I have no idea what you're talking about. I know what you mean with K records, but teen beat or K records. It, it definitely yeah, doesn't. Beat. Okay. It definitely doesn't scream Fugazi. That's for sure. Yeah. It'd be interesting to know what the story behind the cover was. That's true. That's true. Although the back cover looked like heat negatives of the band members faces, which is pretty cool. I think that looks good. Yeah. A little ominous almost. <laughs> yeah. A little yeah. scary. A little scary. Yeah, they're really, they pay a lot of attention to their typesetting, I notice. They're like one of the first bands to really go full bore in that direction, I feel like. Mm. Gosh, I got to pull up the Discord one now. Yeah, I mean, it's a live photo. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, blurry with, photo. But, of- but you're you're focusing on Guy, yeah. who um, <laughs> a distorted photo. Took <laughs> he, this photo. Yeah, it was yeah. a photographer by Adam Cohn. Adam Cohn is a photographer. Jim's and brother, right? Who, I'm sorry, who? Jim Cohen's brother. Who's Jim Cohn? Oh, you know, uh, J.E.M. from that did the uh, the uh, documentary and the Blue Man movie and all that stuff. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay, that's um, right. <laughs> <laughs> So Adam Cohn, okay. So Adam Cohn also took the photo that's on the cover of uh, the, Steady the Diet, Fugazi, right? Fugazi twelve inch. Oh, he did of the so the first the red record, the red record, yeah. Okay, yeah, and yeah, he also has a credit for um, Steady Diet and yeah, nothing. The cover, yeah. Okay, and he also has some credits for um, Eagles that band Eagles of Death Metal. Oh, that's strange. And peaches. <laughs> so yeah, he's wow. got some photography credits. Definitely. Yep. He looks uh he looks like he's an alien from the, one of the Roswell aliens. Oh, he does. He does. Right? I, I mean, know. he's so kind physically stretched distorted. Out and, yeah. I mean, first of all, right, he's contorting himself to begin with, and just the way the way the camera just distorts his body on top of that. <laughs> he does. He looks he looks alien-esque. He does. That's funny. Kind of looks like did do you know the white cross seven inch getting obscure here? No, I don't. Okay. They great, great band, but from Richmond, but they, uh, on the cover, they have one of these toys from the seventies of this kind of stretchy guy, like really cheap little stretchy guy. And that's what Guy reminds me of. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking at the cover now and, uh, yeah, I could, I could see that. <laughs> But it's a cool photo. It's very distinctive. Definitely. I mean, I, I've seen this photo many times. And and it gives you a sense of, of them in motion and them in action. 
Yeah. What's the back cover? Let me see that. Uh, the back cover has the lyrics, mm. and it's got um, sort of hard to tell what's on what's on the back cover. <laughs> it's just very it's very washed out and blurred yeah. out. There is if you turn it on its side, there's a there's a person there. I'm not sure who that is though. Yeah, it's hard to tell. Take we take it out of the. Uh, Doesn't look like E energy. Huh? It's hard to tell. Yeah, it's hard to tell. So all right, that's that's all we got to say on this yep. one. Yeah, yeah. We I think we covered it. So, yeah. Why don't we talk to uh, the man who produced it, your friend and ours, Ted Nicely. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's funny. I like the other records, some more than others, but you know, literally the three that I listen to the most are the three you produced. So funny. Mm. I, I think it's like that with a lot of people. I mean, 
you know, it could be because of the the songs. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they they all happened within this time frame when everything was kind of building, building, building. Right. And when in on the kill taker came along, that was kind of the big burst. Mm-hmm. That was that was based, you know, right after that. Cobain oh, was it right before that or right after that? It was no, right it was after right that. after that. Uh-huh. That Cobain died because I saw Nirvana a couple nights, maybe a week or two before Fugazi played Roseland for that three night stand, and he died shortly after that. But you know, I mean, it just it just all tied in, and and mm-hmm. and anyway, so you know, I I probably listened more to some of the other Fugazi albums. I mean, the ones that came after Killtaker recently than I had since they were made. You know, I mean, I I normally don't listen to bands I produced records unless I'm I'm just absolutely crazy about it. You know, right. It's yeah. it's not it's not like a a malicious thing. It's just a <laughs> it's just a I I find it difficult to not I don't know unless it, it just slam bangs me. You know, like I mean, for for instance, for instance, when when I heard Margin Walker, and when they came over to talk to me about you know what was going to go on, you know, because I hadn't even are, are we taping now. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. You know, at the time I was living on Wisconsin and Calvert Street and in, you know, upper Georgetown. Right. And anyways, I don't know if it was everybody or it was just three people, but they came by to give me a cassette of Margin Walker and they wanted to talk to me. They'd just gotten back from that whole experience, you know, maybe a week or two before and they ha- they had to jump on this getting the sub pop thing together and and so they asked me what I was doing whatever but you know of course I wanted to know how margin walker went you know right. and <laughs> they didn't spill like they spilled on your show a couple weeks ago <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> they more I had, diplomatic I do, <laughs> yeah you know I mean I just got the idea I mean they did talk a little bit about they didn't like the way they had to record, but that Brendan had been sick and they only had a certain amount of time to be in this one studio and to, and they cut the drums there. And that studio I'm really familiar with, not as in I've worked there, but a lot of records I liked at that time, like the wonder stuff, oh, uh-huh. a lot of, you know, early, marriage. I guess I, you know, well, I mean, well, the the studio they tracked the drums at was called the Greenhouse, I think. A lot of stuff, like I think some Julian Cope stuff was done there, but I, mm-hmm. I definitely remember the Wonder Stuff's album being done there. And you know, just, you know, singles and stuff that I probably heard while I was working up yesterday and today and all that. And, and I was at that time. So, I mean, I was, I was all gassed, like, wow, man, they're going to this place and then they're going to finish it. And, you know, uh, John's studio project studio. And I didn't know then that they hated not playing together live because, you know, half the time you do a record, 
or you you know you cut a demo or something but mainly yeah i mean i'd say either or you know people don't play together i mean a lot of people don't want to you know i mean they lay down the track together and then the guitars will be ahead of the beat or behind the beat or you know just not very well performed so you know when you're playing live no one notices all that junk of course so anyways you know they told me they didn't have a very good time to recording it they didn't know what they were going to do but they were wondering if i would be amenable to doing this uh, a couple of songs for the sub pop split single and i always had loved song number one yeah yeah and um I mean, that was one of the first songs, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know when I saw them early at DC Space, probably before Gee was in the band, quote unquote, but maybe sang on that, uh, you know, on the question and answer shit. You know, I thought it was really powerful. So I was like, sure, let's do it. And then I think I had heard the instrumental and break in, you know, I didn't think it was going to be any big deal, but... I didn't think any of it was going to be a big deal, but we just kind of went down to Don, uh, you know, the old inner or the basement studio and, and set up and, and recorded it and probably did the whole thing like in one day. Oh yeah. If, if, if we didn't do it all in one day, then we came back and just mixed. I think stuff. we did all the music and maybe did the vocals and mixed it, you mm-hmm. know, and then on another day we really kind of rushed it and I didn't really think a lot of the sound of it, to be honest with you. After it was all said and done, I didn't think it sounded as good as the red EP I did. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I didn't think it sounded as good as margin Walker by a long shot. Really? That's interesting. No, my, my whole thing is after I heard margin Walker, Uh even the cassette tape, I was like, I don't understand why they don't want to do everything with John, you know, I don't, I don't know. All I know is I, I had heard it, loved it. And, you know, maybe I had already heard it. And then they came to meet with me about the single. Cause I remember saying, well, look, dudes, I don't hear anything wrong with this. <laughs> I mean, they, they kind of wanted my opinion. And I said, right. this, this sounds really, really fantastic. Songs are great super super cool you know i mean because well just to get technical for a second john Hmm. had one of these i think these trident 800 series consoles that you would see back then quite a bit i i i've I've worked on a couple and i mean there's just they're they're really distinctive uh they just have a sound that's incredible and um so anyways, I liked Marjorie Walker a lot, and we went in to Don's and did our thing. And after we mixed it, I just came away thinking, ah, because one of the things was, well, if we dig this, then we want you to do repeater. That's the way I remember it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, it wasn't like, well, you know, I mean, it was just like, well, you know, yeah, we're it's not like you're sorted out yeah. and, you know, we're going to see what's happened, but we really liked working with you. And yeah. so anyways. And how did, cause you didn't on the red one, you did, you said you didn't take part in any of the recording part of it. And did didn't you take, this? I didn't take part in 
to the tracking of the instruments, mm-hmm. which I don't know. I still feel that's a little weird, but um, you know, my memory just isn't that great. I do remember sitting down and you know putting up the mix and those guys starting to sing because we had a lot of conversations about the vocals. Yeah. Like we're talking about the red EP. I'm like, sure, yeah. You got you got to stop all this pushing stuff. You know, like I was rereading a bit of it on the kill taker the other night the the 33 and the third book yeah 33 and third book and i don't know if it's ian or gee or both of them are saying you know steve was like yeah man push it push it and that's (laughs) the way they would always describe their vocals like i don't think i was pushing it enough and i said dude if you push it anymore a you're gonna fucking collapse the microphone and b you're not gonna be able to sing another song yeah you'll blow out your voice right you know, we, there's no sense in it. All you, you know, I mean, like, and I said it pretty much this way. I said, you know, man, it, it just sounds like you're screaming at people. <laughs> and, and that might work, you know, like when you're live or, you know, like from the other bands or whatever. But it's not working here because the material was starting to change so much. I mean, you know, song number one's totally different thing. We shouldn't get ahead of ourselves, really. But, but anyways, I, you know, I did song number one. I wasn't very satisfied with it. I mean, that was purely on mine and Don's account. That's you know, I mean, I just, I just didn't think it was particularly well engineered. Mm. It didn't. I didn't think it sounded as special as the, as the Red EP. Certainly not Margin Walker, and, you know, I'm not trying to one up anybody or anything. You know, I mean, or. I just wasn't sure we had gotten what we needed, you know, that I mm-hmm. had captured their sound because at that time, you know, the big thing was, you know, like we don't sound like we do live, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I, I mean, it wasn't a big deal when we did the red record, you know, no one came back and said, this doesn't sound live enough. They, I think they were kind of surprised. It sounded like it did, but I just thought, it, it it didn't it wasn't really happening mm-hmm. i mean i thought the performance was fine mm-hmm. it, the song is a song and when it all comes down to it you know like we can think it sounds like crap or you know it isn't well mixed or something but if no one else does who now cares you know i mean right, i'm right. still gonna care but you <laughs> yeah. know i'm, of I'm course, just one you're, person you're so close to it though yeah yeah you know and, i mean re-listening to it even today to my ears yeah i guess if i had to compare it to the red red record i would say it's not as clean and big sounding but exactly that that was my problem Mm -hmm. because i thought i thought all those stops they had in the song and everything and the way the verse would come down very low and then you know kind of blow up i just thought there's we didn't capture that dynamic, oh, which mm-hmm. which we kind of did in suggestion and, yeah, yeah, and you know the other songs uh, on the red, yeah, yeah, you know, and 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 so I I was just a little disappointed, but you know a lot of times when you set up for an EP or a, or an LP, certainly you know you might go back and do an, a song, you change the drum making around or whatever, but. 
you know, when you're going in and you're basically doing two songs, it's like, yeah, yeah, you know. it's a quick affair. And yeah, um, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Cause it, I mean, it sounds uniform as far as the three songs don't sound radically different, except for the piano on, of course, on uh, what is it? Joe number one, but yeah, but I, I don't, I don't think that I'm pretty sure we recorded all that stuff together. Didn't we? No, that's what I'm saying. I'm just saying, yeah. but having said that, I feel like of the three that song number one still, you know, it, for some reason it pops out. I mean, besides being the best song on there, I feel like the energy is there, if not the I, I, I think that's clarity. The, yeah. I, well, I mean, I think the fact that, you know, we probably did three takes of it and picked the best one and, and it is a great song and that yeah. always makes it better. <laughs> you know, not that the other ones stunk, but they just weren't, you know, yeah, I mean, it was obvious that that was the, the ace. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it was, and that was the intention, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to put song number one out and, you know, these other ones right. that we have laying around. So, and then that was it. And I don't know, I guess after we finished that. Well, just to stay on it for a sec, uh, you know, whose idea was it to add the piano to the instrumental? I think that's the way it was written. Really? Because mm-hmm. I think they. I, d- I didn't have any idea that it was like a, something that was suggested. I mean, uh-huh. it's, I mean, I haven't listened to what is, is they... it called? Joe number one? Yeah, yeah. I haven't listened to that for a long time. I, I think they always had that idea, you know, because um, Brendan plays piano. I think uh, Ian plays piano too, you know, I mean, it, it wasn't a thing. I mean, because back then, I mean, you know, there's kind of a funny story about Repeater, which you probably read. It's where, you know, they wanted me to hear the songs when I went over to hear the songs. And it's always been my thing when I go into pre-production on a record that I have a notepad and make notes about the songs. And so when they invited me over to the basement or whatever and said here i guess it was ski's house mm-hmm. and said here we're playing you know most stuff from repeater or whatever what we got written so far and and i had a notepad and i was probably writing it a little bit you know and and then you know all of a sudden like you know ian said what what the fuck is this what do you, what do you have a notepad for <laughs> i said well you know i like to take notes on songs you know maybe you know, a part that I've got an overdub idea I might want to suggest or something. I just like to write down how the songs, yeah, you yeah. know, what I'm to hearing. Get it in your brain, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> of course, he was a bit fucking missed. Uh, <laughs> why he thought you were going to come in and be like, okay, we want, we need you to change well, this. Add you, yeah. Yeah. You know, like I ever do that. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's such a, conjunct about all this bullshit about what producers I mean yeah I know there's certain people that do that but one I mean like I mean let's just jump back a little bit I mean when I heard that story on your guy's margin walker episode and you know that that fucking John handed Brendan his his tape edits in a bag oh yeah (laughs) and said oh here's here's your drum parts 
Yeah. I mean, I almost fucking dropped. <laughs> I was just like, holy shit, I can't believe. But, but you know, I mean, this is the thing, okay? I'm, a, a, I couldn't believe that he would do that. Uh-huh. And I very sincerely doubt that he meant to insult anyone. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, but, but over, oh, you know, in Britain, in fact, you know, probably most European countries, but especially Britain, since, you know, I mean, like in the day, they had three or f- they had three major music newspapers. Mm-hmm. And then they, they had Sounds, Melody Maker, New Musical yeah, Express. And then, they, and then, they, then yeah. they had Smash Hits, you know, all these other things floating around and then some kind of cerebral shit and and then all that yeah yeah you know and 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 so i mean my impression was always and especially after i went to england the first time and i i had a lot of time to kill over there i was making a record that was taken i mean it was always going to take three months or something to do and we kept on going in between this place and the country and then going to london and stuff and i think in britain it's like you know kids want to be either rock and roll stars or they want to be soccer players <laughs> yeah i mean yeah. especially the guys i think you know the women want to be rock stars or you know singers i mean you know there's some such a darth the wealth of talent there and it's kind of like a national pastime and all this stuff that that a that a British producer might think about right away, like, oh, well, let's you know, let's put him on a click track, or you know, okay, you're not. You, he sounds like shit on a click track. Takes everything that's good about him away, yeah. but we'll edit. But we'll edit, mm-hmm. and then you know, I mean, I just think at the time that John may not have been around a lot of of music where people didn't really know what's you know i mean that were that organic oh you know here in the united states everyone's like all about uh, you know i mean i think back at that time a lot of people it wasn't a case of being organic it was a case of i play drums (laughs) you know and and then i mean because when when my band went into the studio to, you know, do our Geffen record, well, any of the times we went in the studio with other people producing us, because Tommy and I have produced it up, produced ourselves. Mm-hmm. When we went in the studio with Tommy T- Keen, just for Tommy Keen. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we went in the studio with T-Bone, Don Burnett, uh, T-Bone mm-hmm. Burnett and Don Dixon, who had done, uh, you know, the first two REM records, you know, it was, but when we went in the studio with Jeff Emmerich, I mean, he just, he just thought we should play it. And I don't know if he thought, you know, we should just be natural or, or he was like, Oh God, you know, I can't ask this. (laughs) I know he's so shy. It's like a different case. He went very upfront about things, but the main thing is, is that, I would make notes on songs and things and, and, you know, I think Ian saw my notebook and thought I was going to be uh, uh, like, like what's his name again, you know, loader. 
Oh, sure. And, right, and right. like I said, I, I just fresh think, off of that too. They're probably yeah, and I, I, little gun yeah, Well, I mean, they were definitely real skittish about that yeah. shit. And I didn't know why exactly, but now I do. All right. Thanks, Ted. It's been great having you on for now for the first two releases that you've recorded. And teaser, this isn't the last time you'll hear from Ted nicely. So he's really been a trooper for the show. Yeah. It wasn't the first time. will be the last time. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. Time to put this back. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you go first this time? Okay. I've got an embarrassment of non-riches in the seven-inch department. I've kind of resigned myself to realize that I must have lost at least a couple boxes of seven inches. Oh, no. I know. And one of them's, one of my big ones is in the uh, storage space still. But after that uh, little caveat, it will explain why I've got no F's in my seven inches at current time. So on one side of Fugazi would be the X, not, not X, but the X, Uh, the Dutch band, the Dutch band. Yeah. Who I love, of course. So in are very Fugazi esque, but or vice versa, I should say. And it's the seven inch, all corpses smell the same haunting title. And one of the early, early seven inches. Side A is human car and rock and roll stole. And side two is cells and apathy disease. I love that band. You know, yeah, you've mentioned them. You've mentioned them before. Yeah, they just, you know, seem to be like the more arty, impassioned, and uh, angular crass who could play their instruments, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then on the other side, a very obscure, hard to find, and not well-known guy named Richie Haas and it's Richie Haas and the solutions. The eighties are over. This, (laughs) this came out in 1980 and Richie Haas 
you know, is, wait, this came out in 1980 and it's called the eighties are over. Exactly. Yeah. Jump, jump in the gun. there. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you give it some time to settle in? I know exactly. Well, you know, he, he had foresight and Richie Haas, the way I know him or was introduced to him is through John Truby and the ugly janitors. He was a member of that band, John Truby, who did the outsider song. It was famous called, uh, blind man's penis oh classic <laughs> it is my mom my mom loved that song <laughs> she used to sing it to you to to go to She's, sleep <laughs> right yep, absolutely. <laughs> but richie haas also played with saccharine trust he was in zoog's rift yes i i knew that's how his name was familiar to me because mm-hmm. of his association with uh zoog's rift but most importantly blind man's penis but yes, but on the seven inch, uh, John Truby plays guitar. There's some saxophones. It's it's good. It's kind of no wave slash new wave. And I don't know most of the other players on it, but I like that the the drummer's name is Ginger Banker. Mm. <laughs> Relation to uh, Ginger Baker. No, I got that. <laughs> I, I got now wait. Now go back because you said sacred trust. Yeah. When did he play with Sack and Trust? Well, he wasn't like one of the core members, but he he is he is on Sack and Trust releases. I want to say probably the live albums. I could be wrong, so I know he played shows with them. Hmm. Well, I do love me some Sack and Trust. Yeah, so. yeah. He was in that in that crew of kind of outsider stuff, hmm. and kind of jazzy too. So yeah, where does yours live? Yeah. So. <clears throat> So I got some interesting ones and something that's actually totally coincidentally going to tie into the show. (laughs) So my are between two records, some similarities here. So these two bands, first of all, 99% of the people listening to this have never heard of either of these bands. Well, they've both definitely heard of Richie Haas. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, both of these bands here, um, this is uh, maybe some contracts aside. These are the only releases that they ever put out for these seven inches. But both bands have guitar players from much more well-known bands. Okay. All right. So on the front side, we have a band called FTE, which stands for Front Towards Enemy. Okay. And it's a, um, it's a very nice package. It's a double. It's a double seven-inch, very okay. glossy. Yeah, yeah. And um, I listened to it today, and it's, it's if, if I say that it just sounds like generic hardcore, then you know what, what this sounds like. <laughs> really? It's not very good. <laughs> but the guitar player in this band is Steve Carp, who is, or, or maybe is, I don't know what their current status is, the excellent band, Yuppicide. Oh, I remember that. So yeah. Yuppicide had broken up for a time and they got back together. And Yuppicide were great. I absolutely love that band. Uh, this one, I guess, was sort of the band he put together in between and uh, not not great but <laughs> yeah. here's here's a little bit of a tie-in for this show oh and by the way both records came out in 1996 okay so this one came out that, this is the very looks first like release. a 96 release yeah yeah <laughs> so this is the very first release on exit records exit records was a uh, subsidiary i guess you could say of wreckage records and i believe kind of what happened was around this time and this is according to someone who i will mention my name in a moment uh, who ran this label, 
Uh, Wreckage kind of wanted to go a little bit more experimental at this time with their releases. The the owner, Pavlos, was very influenced by like alternative tentacles and stuff like that. And uh, so he um, he wanted to keep a subsidiary of the label going that would still cover more traditional, straightforward hardcore. And he enlisted uh, Artie Shepard, who played in the band's uh, Mind Over Matter and lots of, I mean, tons of other bands. Um, Era Type 11 and Artie Philly, uh, who I'll get to more in a moment, uh, to start this label called Exit. They only put out around a dozen or so records over the course of uh, maybe a couple of years, but this is the first release. They had better releases than this. Now, Artie Philly uh, is, I am hoping, to be one of our guests on the Repeater Plus Three episode. Artie very, very uh, huge contributor to the Long Island scene, especially during the 90s. Played in some great bands. He played at Millhouse, but he also was briefly the singer in Indecision, okay. who did a cover of a Fugazi song that's going to be on repeater. He also had Milhouse? a major. Was it yes. The, uh, the, the sa- he was in Millhouse, but Indecision. Band? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not going to speak for him or that, yeah, on yeah, that yeah. issue. Just- but Artie, uh, Artie played in a lot of bands. He played in a lot of great bands. I think the last band he played in, he now lives in Chicago. He's been in Chicago for a while. But he played in an awesome band called Concrete Cross, who put out a really just killer demo NLP. But anyway, he had a major hand in booking the Fugazi show that was on Long Island. And so I plan on having him, uh, you know, a short interview for our Repeater Plus Three episode, two episodes from now. So total coincidence that I happen to Pull this one out and it was on his label. So there's that connection. Now, on the other side, another one, like I said, another one off band, a one off seven inch band. This one is full bony. (laughs) Okay. Full bony. This is an all female hardcore band from San Francisco. This came out on um, Alloyed Recordings, great 90s San Francisco label. And uh, their guitar player, Karen Gembis, was the guitarist in Spitboy. Is this before or after? This is after. I think it was simultaneous with the band that she was in after Spitboy okay. called Instant Girl. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you remember them. Yeah. I think 96 is right around the same time. I gave this one a listen to today, too. It's two very, very short songs. It's like like the whole seven inches. I mean, maybe three minutes long. Um, but I like I like this one better than the other one. Sure. It's uh, both songs are pretty just um, raw and garagey and uh and I like this. I like this one a bit. That's so cool. That's it. So, okay. Yeah. There we go. There's, there's, uh, there we go. All the animals in the zoo are present. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So back in the box it goes. So I guess, um, I don't know. I'll do my little spiel here yep. where if you, if you like what we do, please, the, the, the best way is just to uh, spread the word about the podcast. Anyone you know, who is into into these records, into 80s, 90s, and so forth, so forth, um, you know, independent underground rock music, fans of Discord, you know, just uh, share the link, share a link, share the knowledge of this podcast. The podcast exists. Um, write a review, give us a rating, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app of choice. Become a Patreon member. Uh, patreon.com end on end extras club we are finished with the uh, with the book we we went through every chapter of 
Dance of Days, and our next uh, meetup is going to be this Sunday, so you're not going to hear this, but uh, <laughs> you know it, it'll already be done. But before you get to it, but we will be having um, a discussion about the Salad Days documentary, and hopefully, we're going to have Scott Crawford as a guest, the director That's of that. The movie. plan, um, yeah, yeah. So, so it's stuff like that that you get, and it's uh, we don't ask for much, and it helps to keep the lights on because, as Brian has said before, we're never going to have ads. Or anything like that. It's always going to be free, and uh, but that doesn't mean that doing the podcast is free. So uh, the Patreon does help uh, with some of the expenses of doing it. So um, now let's get to the playlist. Oh, we yeah. curate we curate a playlist on Spotify called End on End, the ever evolving Discord mixtape. We're up to a hundred and well, actually I haven't added the songs from the Holy Rose episode <laughs> yet. So we're up to 125 songs and about five and a half hours of music. And we're going to, we made a decision that since this is only a three song EP, we're going to come to a, a consensus pick for this one. So I have a feeling I know what we're going to choose, but, uh, and we will have another opportunity at these songs Two weeks from now when we do uh, repeater plus three. So what what would be your choice uh, for this uh, for this one? It would obviously be song number one. Song number one. It would be the song that isn't the fuck you song. <laughs> that's right. As opposed that, to Joe number one. And, on, man. As a, yeah, as opposed well, I think Joe number one's kind of a fuck you song. I don't know. <laughs> Joe's getting a little you know out of line on that song. That's right. Um, yeah, I mean, me too. I think, you know, song number one is the centerpiece of this seven inch for sure. It's uh, a great yeah. song. It's, it's, you know, it's, I agree. I mean, I like, I like Joe number one and break in a lot actually. Um, but I think song number one is like one of the Fugazi classic songs. So, yeah. all right. Consensual pick consensus pick. And consensual pick. <laughs> as long as it's consensual. Um, and a very, a very sensual pick. <laughs> Keep going on. Song number one. All right. In the books. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. listen, there. have a, um, you know, however people celebrate or not celebrate, I'm just going to say, you know, well, this happy Thanksgiving. Come out, yeah. So it won't, it'll be long gone when people hear. It'll be, well, it won't, well, hopefully it's not long gone. <laughs> um, hopefully it's just slightly gone. Right. Uh, but I do wish you a happy Thanksgiving, however you celebrate that or not celebrate it. And, you know, I certainly am very thankful uh, to be doing this podcast with you, Brian. I am thankful that you have the idea to start this thing and the idea to, you know, bring me on when a, um, an opening arose in the lineup. And uh, I am very appreciative to and thankful for the people who actually spend time listening to us ramble on and on about these records and, and other end things that end aren't end even yeah, <laughs> end on end forever. Things that aren't even, uh, you know, on Discord that we ramble <laughs> on and on about and, uh, you know, meeting, you know, meeting some really, really good people uh, through doing through doing this show. So I am thankful for that. Yeah, back at you, man. I think we're the classic lineup now of uh, host for the show, and you know how there's the classic band lineups. I think this is it. Doesn't not always the original lineup. No, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, man, I, I wouldn't honestly. I might have kept going and been able able to, and probably would have done it without you. But it 
definitely wouldn't have been uh, the same and or as good. You you bring a lot to it, to this. And yeah, yeah. Thanks to everyone out there for spending hours with us. Thanks to our Patreon people that are community now. As you heard last episode, we've had a couple of them on. All of these folks have become friends. And that's super meaningful to me. These people that I would never, most likely never have met in my life that now I consider good friends. Yeah. Here's to many more. Yes, without a doubt. Definitely. With that said, uh, we will be recording another episode the week after Thanksgiving. So um, <laughs> if you haven't already figured out, I'll ask the question anyway. What do we got coming up next week? Next week, we've got Fugazi, the second part of the trilogy with Repeater. Discord 44. That's that's a big one. First full-length LP yeah. from Fugazi. and um, Many people's favorite, too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think, I, I mean. It's hard. It's a hard call, but yeah. If, if we didn't count 13 songs. But that's not a. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think, yeah. but right, it's it's if we just did the thing separately, mm-hmm. like you had, you couldn't pick thirteen songs. I think Repeater might be might win the poll, might win the straw poll. Yeah, that's a good good point. We should uh, put that out there on one of our social media platforms. See what <clears throat> see what people say. Yeah, it's hard to say, but I think it's also sort of the beginning of the next chapter and of the band. And, and this is the era that I discovered the band in mm. was sort of what I consider to be kind of chapter two of the band. So it is. And, but yeah, and it's, it's a, what, what I love about it is they've still got one foot in the early days and the anthems and the really aggressive and punchy songs. And then they, they're starting to incorporate all the, uh, you know, the later complexity and, and uh, dissonance and, experimentation it, it's yeah i look forward to getting into that yeah it's a great album so yeah. all right well it's gonna be a long week hopefully uh they don't beat you town too much i know <laughs> at your retail job i know you're probably jobs this is a pummeling time of year for people that work in retail oh god yeah but yeah thank you and i'll see you on the other side of it sounds good all right key get us out of here Oh, it feels so strange When it comes again